Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, folks, and welcome to the Stone and Tile Show. I am your host, Fred Houston, and I am back. And this is the show where we talk everything that has to do with stone and tile, whether it's an installation, troubleshooting, fabrication, restoration, or if it has to do with stone, it has to do with tile, this is where we'll discuss it. Uh, feel free to call in. The telephone number is 323-870-3968. That's 323-870-3968. And before we get started, first I'd like to talk a little bit about the Stone Show. I went to the uh, the Stone Show out in Vegas last week. It was great, very crowded. Uh, lots of displays, lots of nifty new things out there. So if it, no one's ever been to any of those shows, I would highly recommend it, especially if you're in the stone and tile business. Uh, there's another one coming up uh, in Orlando in April. It's called Coverings. Uh, that's another one to attend. Of course, while I was out there, I did my uh, stone inspection and troubleshooting uh, class, uh, four-day class. It went really well. Students were great. Uh, we had a good time. Did some live inspections. Uh, I'm probably going to try doing another one sometime this summer, but I need to know if you guys would want to have it uh, in Las Vegas again or whether you would want to come to Florida, uh, probably just outside of Orlando, I'm thinking. So if you want to go ahead and send me an email, fhuston, F-H-U-E-S-T-O-N, at gmail.com, and just let me know, Las Vegas or Orlando, Florida. And uh, I can go ahead and schedule that. I'm thinking maybe this sometime this summer. We had a few people uh, that had some family issues that couldn't make it. So I want to go ahead and, and do that before next year because normally I only offer this uh, seminar once a year unless you want to take the correspondence course. I do have a correspondence course available for two seminars, actually. The Stone and Tile Troubleshooting and Inspection Seminar is one, and the other one is a Historic Stone Restoration Seminar. Uh, those are both available. Uh, it's a self-guided PowerPoint presentation. Just pop it on your computer. Uh, also comes with a with a flash drive that has a live recording of the actual seminar that I know a lot of guys, what they do is they listen to them in their car. The nice thing about the correspondence course is that you get to hear it again and again and again as often uh, as you want. So that's something that uh, you might want to consider. If you're interested, go ahead and drop me an email at fhuston, that's F-H-U-E-S-T-O-N, at gmail.com. Of course, I can always be reached on my Facebook Messenger page. Again, search for Stone Forensics, and you'll be able to uh, uh, contact me there through through Messenger. Uh, you can send me an instant message uh, there, as well as on my cell phone, which is 321-514-6845. Don't call that now. I won't answer it while I'm on the radio, but feel free to send me a message if you have a question, if you don't feel like calling in. Again, if you want to call in with a question, today's going to be a hodgepodge of different types of topics that I came up with. I, you know, because I was gone all week long, I really didn't have time to prepare a complete, you know, a topic wise uh, uh, presentation for today. But I, I do have a lot of different emails that I want to talk about. And then if any of you saw my posting on Facebook, and I posted this uh, this afternoon, I'm going to leave the story to a little bit later on, not, not too much longer, but a little bit later on. And that is 
stone, and sex. <laughs> and, uh, it's not what you think, uh, but uh, it's kind of an interesting story that happened to me a number of years ago, and uh, it, it's kind of a funny story, and you may want to stick around to uh, <clears throat> uh, to listen to that particular. Actually, there's two stories that I have uh, concerning that. All right. The first uh, topic I have, and I may have covered this on some of the other shows, I don't know, but I've gotten these this, this question a couple of times in the past couple of weeks, and that is, how do you achieve the final polish on some of this quartz surface, or what I like to call engineered stone? Now, many of you know that when you polish engineered stone, there's a couple of key things you need to know. First of all, you don't want to use metal bond diamonds. Secondly, uh, you want to make sure that you're using diamonds that are specifically de designed uh, for the engineered materials. So a lot of times the uh, granite diamonds that are available out there won't work. Now, there are combination sets that will work on both, but make sure you ask your distributor where you're buying your diamonds if they will work on engineered surfaces. Now, the problem comes in and that when you reach the final polish, or depending on whose diamonds you're using, the last grit, you get a fantastic shine, but that surface shine does not match the existing, that dimpled, speckled, however you want to call it, alligator skin uh, type appearance that you see on a factory finish. How do you achieve that? Well, there's a number of ways to achieve that. Uh, several companies like Alpha, I think, has a, a pad to achieve that. Uh, I use a little trick that uses tin oxide. Now, for those of you that don't know what tin oxide is, tin oxide is simply granite polishing powder. I use the white polishing powder. You sprinkle a little bit of tin oxide after you're all done, all the way up to your final grit, and then you take a pad by hand, not with your machine, because it's a little bit too fast, and by hand, and you just rub that area, and you should be able to achieve that factory finish. Now, the reason that happens, the reason you get a really, really high shine on the engineered material is, remember, you're dealing with a polyester and quartz. So what happens is when you're polishing that with your diamonds, you're actually smearing that polyester and polishing that po polyester clear across the surface. So what that tin oxide does, it's a mild abrasive. It just kind of takes it off. So you may want to uh, try that trick. Second topic, uh, this is something that I just discussed in my inspection seminar, but I've discussed this probably on the show before, but someone's always asking me what the difference is between efflorescence and subfluorescence. Uh, but before I talk about the differences between the two, again, efflorescence versus subfluorescence, I want to make sure this is clear, folks. For those of you that keep using the term effervescence, that white powder that forms on a top of stone is not effervescence. Effervescence is what happens when you drop the Alka-Seltzer in the water and it fizzes and bubbles. That's effervescence. Now, unless your stone is doing that, that is not effervescence. It is efflorescence. Uh, efflorescence, if you want to remember the term, uh, basically think of a fluorescent light bulb, and you've got efflorescence. Now, what's the difference between efflorescence and subfluorescence. Well, first of all, we have to describe or you know what is efflorescence to begin with. Well, those of you that have been in the business for a while probably know what it is, but it's basically what we call soluble salts, salts that are either dissolved in the setting bed, uh, the slab, if it's a slab on grade installation, and in some cases, even in the stone itself, that is dissolved in water and it comes to the surface and it deposits on the surface in the form of a powder or a salt. That is what efflorescence is. 
Now, under normal conditions, it deposits on the surface. You simply buff it off, and as long as the stone is, is still wet, you'll probably get more and more efflorescence. And as it gets drier and drier and drier, the efflorescence will stop as long as you've stopped the moisture, because you do need the moisture in order to carry the salts to the surface, and you're done. Now, what suppose happens when those soluble salts don't quite make it to the surface? In other words, they're just below the surface. What happens is they crystallize, and they cause pressure within the pores of certain stone. And what happens is it causes the stone to spall, or if you will, causes it to pop. That is known as subfluorescence. And the way to remember that term is that think of sub submarine. What does a submarine do? It goes down under. So that's what's happening here. It's subfluorescence. So that's the difference between efflorescence and subfluorescence. Subfluorescence is very difficult to fix. Uh, a lot of guys will go in and they'll see a small stone. Uh, they'll clean it. They might hone it and they'll fill it. And they're all said and done and everything looks honky-dory, fine and dandy. And then what happens is they come back a week, a month, six months later, and it's doing the same thing. And why? Because you haven't solved the problem. You haven't solved the moisture problem or the salt problem, which is a whole nother whole nother topic and i'm not sure if i've done a show on moisture or not but uh, if not that's a great great one to do send in a suggestion and i'll i'll go ahead and spend an entire show on efflorescence subfluorescence and the moisture issues that are caused um, in stone and tile surfaces um the next topic is and i get this a lot from consumers and that is i have some dirty grout now whether you're talking stone or tile, the grout is dirty and they want to clean the grout. And a couple of cautions. Obviously, you don't want to use some of these so-called quote-unquote grout cleaners that are out there because a lot of these grout cleaners are acid-based. And if you use those on a marble surface, you're going to etch the marble. On tile, it's fine. For really difficult grout cleaning, this is what I suggest. It's a two-step process, and this will only work on non-calcium-based materials. In other words, not marble and not limestone. Granite, uh, slate, tile, ceramic, porcelain, whatever. And that's what I call a two-step grout cleaning process. And it requires a little bit of explanation of why I'm doing it this way. You want two chemicals. You want to use an alkali cleaner. Uh, you can use a heavy-duty stone cleaner, which is alkaline. You can use a floor stripper, which is alkaline. And just, you know, read the safety data sheet. And I actually want to uh, go over how to actually read a safety data sheet and some of the tips that I'm going to give you with reading a safety data sheet here in a minute. And w the reason you want to use an alkali first is that it attacks oil. So a lot of times uh, you'll get you know, a lot of grimy grout that has oil and grease in it. The alkaline will take care of that. After, what I would do is clean the grout with the alkali. And after you're done with the alkali, I would rinse it and then hit it with a mild acid. And my favorite acid to use on grout is an acid called sulfamic acid. It's S-U-L-F-A-M-I-C, sulfamic acid. And you can usually pick up sulfamic acid in uh, uh, most tile supply stores will have it. They'll know what you're talking about. I know Lowe's and Home Depot used to carry it. Uh, called it actually, they just called it sulfamic acid crystals. So it's a it's a powder. It doesn't come as a liquid, and you mix it with water. And the reason that's a good grout cleaner is it has no odor to it. So if you're in a confined space like a, someone's bathroom, and you need to use an acid, that's probably the best acid to use. Uh, again, it is an acid, so you need to be careful. You know, not to get it on metal surfaces or any other acid-sensitive surfaces itself. 
All right. The next topic I want to spend a little time on and probably give you, and and it might be a little bit boring. It might not be to some of you, but it's something I think that's extremely important. And that is how to read a safety data sheet. Now, in the past, up till I think it was last year, they were called a material safety data sheet. And OSHA went ahead and shortened that now to a safety data sheet as opposed to a material safety data sheet. And the current safety data sheets are about 16 sections. And I'm not going to go through each and every one of them, but I am going to go through a few. I mean, section one is the obvious. That's where you identify the product. It usually has the address of the company, all the emergency numbers on it, etc. The second part is what we call the hazardous identification. That's part two. Uh, that's where you'll have an emergency overview, and it'll be real quick. It'll be like uh, something like severe eye irritation, risk of serious image to da- damage to the eyes. Uh, the dust may be irritating. You could have skin and respiratory systems or, or, or whatever. And then in that section, you also get the potential health effects and what's this going to do to your eyes what's it going to do to your skin what's it going to do if you breathe it in what's it going to do if someone accidentally ingests it and i've had that issue where uh, someone's child actually uh, put some powder in their mouth and uh, they were all freaking out Uh, it'll also have environmental hazards on it you know what's it going to do if you you know put it in a lake or, or a local stream or something which you don't want to do uh, section three is the composition, the ingredients, but you have to be careful there. And uh, I'll give you a couple, a couple of little uh, tricks, if you will. A lot of times they're not going to list all the ingredients as far as – it's not the formula, in other words. It's not the recipe uh, for that particular chemical. It's just going to list the hazardous ingredients. If there's non-hazardous ingredients in there, it may not list it. Now, in certain states – you can actually register that chemical or that one of those ingredients in that chemical, and you'll see this on a lot of material uh, safety data sheets that say proprietary ingredients, and that's one way to protect you know what they what they have in there. Um, but one of the things I want you to look at, and sometimes it's in the ingredient information, sometimes it's somewhere else in the MSDS, and that's something called the TLV. It stands for the threshold limit value. What that's going to give you is the the exposure of the chemical that you can achieve safely in an eight-hour shift. Now, most people say, well, if it's 2% hydrofluoric acid, I'm going to die. Not necessarily. The TLV is going to give you that limit over an eight-hour eight-hour period. So that's one little trick in looking at the at the, at the ingredients. Uh, someone asked me the other day. They said, you know, how can I tell? A chemical is a crystallizer, um, as opposed to one that's just called a marble polish, because now a lot of the crystallization companies are not calling them vitrification. They're not calling them crystallization. They're calling them just plain marble polish. Look at a material safety data sheet. If you see the word fluorosilicate, it might say magnesium fluorosilicate. It might say potassium fluorosilicate. But if you see the word fluorosilicate on that safety data sheet, chances are you're dealing with a crystallizer. Okay, you have the first aid measures, that's section four, firefighting uh, measures uh, on number five. Number six is accidental release measures. This is in case, you know, what happens if I spill it. Handling and storage is number seven. Eight is exposure controls and personal protection. Now, the next one is where you can get a lot of clues as to what the chemical is, and that is section nine is the physical and chemical properties. And there's going to be all kinds of 
things on there like appearance, odor, flashpoint, decomposition, temperature, melting points, et cetera, et cetera. The one I want you to pay attention to is the pH. Now, for those of you un not familiar with pH, this is where reading this section can really come in, come in handy. If the chemical you're looking at on the safety data sheet has a pH, whether it's a you know an acid which is going to be below seven, whether it's an alkali which is going to be above seven, or whether it's neutral, if they list a number for the pH, you're dealing with a water-based product. Now, if it has no pH or it says no information available or something of that nature, you're probably dealing with a solvent because in order to have a pH, you have to have water. So things like mineral spirits, methylene chloride, naphtha, MEK, acetone, those are not going to have a pH because they're a solvent. So what does that tell you? Well, that tells you uh, when you're looking at an impregnator, for example, and you want to get a safety data sheet and you want to know, is this water-based or is it solvent-based? You know, what if the salesperson doesn't know? Send me a safety data sheet. I'll take a look at it and voila. If you have a pH there, it's water-based. If you don't have a pH, it's most likely solvent-based. So that's a really dead giveaway when it comes to the physical and chemical chemical properties. The others are really not going to be of concern to you as far as, I mean, you know, decomposition, um, you know, the things of that nature really aren't going to in involve you. Now, the next section, stability and reactivity, is going to tell you what it's going to react with. So it'll tell you don't mix bleach with ammonia. If you have a, an ammonia-based product, it's going to say that on there. It might say don't mix with alkalis, don't mix with acids. Some even say don't mix with water. So that's some good information in there, too. And then number 11, you have your toxicological information. Number 12, you have ecology-type information. Uh, number 13, you have disposal. You know, what do you do with this material when you dispose of it? Now, let me stop there a second because this is coming up for you guys that are actually grinding floors and you're collecting that slurry. I've had several contractors call me. That has never happened to me. Several contractors call me and say, OSHA came on the job site, and this is going to happen in commercial work, and they asked me for a material safety data sheet, or then, or what they call today a safety data sheet, for the slurry that I'm dumping. Where do you get one of those? Guess where? Google. Google marble safety data sheet. Google granite safety data sheet, and you can get a generic safety data sheet, and that's what your slurry is. It's water and marble. If you're grinding marble, it's water and granite if you're grinding granite. So whatever you're grinding, just get the safety data sheet for that material. And, yes, safety data sheets exist for marble. They exist for granite. A lot of the quartz engineered stone people also have safety data sheets, so uh, uh, ask them for them. I mean, I, there's even safety data sheets for diamonds, and a lot of companies will actually have a safety data sheet for diamond. Even though the diamond itself is not going to harm you, the safety data sheet shows that it is safe to use. So very important. Um, you have uh, number 14 on a safety data sheet is transport information. Uh, this is if you're, if you're transporting the material. You have the DOT regulations and all the organizations that control control uh, um, your transportation information if you're going to transport the material. Uh, number 15 is going to be your regulatory information, any kind of uh, uh, chemicals that are regulated and we had a conversation in class last week about certain chemicals aren't available in the state of California. Uh, one of the students who was from California told me MEK is not available there, uh, although they can be available in certain quantities. In other words, I know with certain impregnators, they can sell them to you in a court 
and you can buy a million quarts, but you can't buy one gallon. So there's some really weird regulations in Cal in California. And then um, number 16 is just other information that might be important uh, to that uh, safety data sheet. So, folks, I encourage you to make sure that you look at those safety data sheets. If you have any questions concerning them, either now. Uh, or in the future, in the future, just go ahead and send me an email at fhouston at gmail.com. Uh, if you have a, a question about it now, uh, feel free to call into the show if you're listening live, 323-870-3968. That's eight, uh, 323-870-3968. And, uh, and if you have any other questions concerning stone or tile that you want to ask, uh, feel free to call in. I'd be more than happy uh, to answer those questions for you. So, that's my blurb on, on safety data sheet. In a minute here, we're going to talk about sex and stones, so um, keep keep listening. Um, one of the uh, shows that I did in the past, and I got this question afterwards, is how do you tell if a floor is crystallized? Now, with a good trained eye, you can tell just by looking at it, but there, there's some clues to tell whether you're walking on a, a stone floor, a marble floor, and it's been crystallized. One of the first things you may notice is that if you – catch the light just right, you'll actually see the swirl patterns left by the steel wool. And this is especially true if you're, uh, they've used a, a number two or a number three grade steel wool or they just don't know what they're doing properly. They're not using a fine enough steel wool. You'll see those circular type patterns left by their machine. There's a tool that you can use which works really effectively and that's a magnet. Remember, when you crystallize, for the most part, although some guys don't use steel wool anymore, but the most of them are using steel wool, uh, it's, it's steel. It's magnetic. So if you take a mag magnet and run it, say, up against furniture, up against baseboards, you know, anywhere where you normally wouldn't clean under or get to, and you pick up steel wool fibers, there's a good possibility that that floor has been, been crystallized. And then, of course, the appearance. You know, a heavily crystallized floor, you know, we took the class out over to the Mirage uh, in Vegas there, and that floor has been heavily crystallized. I mean, it just looks like a sheet of plastic uh, on top of the stone, so you do get that, that overall appearance. So um, that answers that question on, on how you can actually go in and see how a floor is crystallized. Now, on a different subject, but also on testing, and I get this one all the time. You know, we did a whole show on resin stone. You know, how, you know, why is stone resin? How is it resin? What are the benefits? Uh, what are the uh, disadvantages? And I would uh, highly recommend you go back and take a listen to that show. But I don't know if I mentioned in that how you test for a resin stone. Now, if you're looking at a slab, it's fairly easy. You can look at the, you know, the side of the slab. You can usually see the resin dripping down on the side of the slab. But how do you test for resin, say, in a countertop? And ah, you really don't know whether it's resin or not. Um, you have to look at what will break down the resin. And probably the chemical that will break down the resin the fastest is going to be methylene chloride. Now, some of you guys, maybe in California, can't get methylene chloride. You want to use the strongest solvent as you can. Now, that will break down the resins. Uh, so you want to you know, put a little bit of it in a non-conspicuous area. You know, let it sit for a minute or two. I would give it a good five minutes to sit there and eat away at it and then remove it you know, with a, with a cloth and, and rinse it off and see what it's done. If it's eaten away at the at the binder and, and this you know the little uh, resin portion of the stone you know you're dealing with a resin a resin based stone one of the things i use and it's kind of hard to tell you what to look for on the radio here is i use a microscope you can pick up a little field microscope 
that uh, you know they're fairly cheap on Amazon or eBay, and uh, you can actually take a look. And you can, you can, and you, you, if you compare the difference between a resin stone and a regular stone, you'll see the difference. So once you do that, you'll know exactly what the difference is. So just look under it under a microscope. Uh, another way, and this is a little bit harder, is uh, what we call the burn test. Uh, those of you that have ever burnt polyester know it has a certain plastic smell to it. Uh, take a torch and burn it. And of course, I wouldn't recommend doing this in the middle of someone's countertop. You know, if you have a sample of the material, go ahead and put a torch to it and see if it. You know, so I, I've actually seen them burn. I mean, literally burn on. You know, not just burn, but actually create a flame it caught on fire, if you will. So that's one of the things you may may want to look at. Um, another uh, question that came in that uh, we discussed in our class was. How do you tell if a vapor barrier has been punctured? Uh, those of you that deal with slab-on-grade installations, say you're from Florida, Texas, Southern California, New Mexico, anywhere they use slab-on-grade, uh, they're you know generally use use vapor barriers, and a lot of times those vapor barriers get punctured. You'll go into a floor, you may have an efflorescence problem or a subfluorescence problem, and you know, you want to know if that vapor barrier has been been compromised. How do you know? Well, there's two ways, actually. And uh, one of the ways is using infrared photography. Sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, it doesn't work in the fact that you can see where moisture is coming up because, remember, infrared photography is only going to show you differences in temperature. You don't know whether that vapor barrier has been compromised or not. You can guess, maybe. There is one surefire method way that I came up with to tell whether you're dealing with a vapor barrier puncture. And this is where having a hobby pays off. I happen, I'm sure I've mentioned this on the show many times, I happen to have a hobby and I keep marine aquariums. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I raised seahorses for a number of years. I don't do that anymore, but I do have uh, marine aquariums. And one of the tests we do for marine aquariums, and I won't get into the chemistry, is what we call a nitrate test. Well, nitrates also occur in soil, but they don't occur in concrete. So if you go in there and you check the concrete for nitrates and you get no nitrates, there's probably not a vapor barrier puncture. But if you do get nitrates, chances are you've got contact with soil somewhere and that chances are you've punctured the vapor barrier. You go into your local aquarium store that sells marine aquarium supplies and you can pick up uh, what is called a nitrate test kit. Uh, it's either a liquid. The one I use is a litmus paper. It has, it does pH, it does nitrite, nitrates, and ammonia. You don't need any of those others, but you definitely need the nitrate one. But you can tell whether you're dealing with a uh, puncture and a vapor barrier by that. And I've used that many, many, many times. Of course, pinpointing it is another story. That's where it may possibly you do the nitrate test first, and then you follow up with the uh, with a litmus paper nitrate test or the uh, infrared camera test. Uh, maybe it's about time here to tell you how uh, this story, there are actually two stories, and we'll stop and uh, tell you these two funny stories about, about sex in stone. And this happened to me many years ago. And in order to explain how this occurred, I have to tell you a little bit about uh, how I lecture when it comes to stain removal. And those of you that have heard my lectures, that have attended my classes, that have listened to my radio show, know when I describe stains, I describe them as either biological, organic, 
or inorganic. So the three basic types, biological, organic, and inorganic. And I'm not going to get into you know, what those are right now. We'll leave that for uh, another seminar. But I was in front of this group one time, and if you guys are out there listening, I'm sure you'll laugh again. And I'm up there giving this lecture, and there's about 30 or 40 people. And I, I start this lecture, and I say there are three types of stains. There are biological, inorganic, and orgasmic. <laughs> I meant to say organic, and I said orgasmic stains. And, uh, well, I, I, I couldn't live that down through the rest of the lecture because it was an all-day lecture, and okay, they kept asking me, so, Fred, how do you remove an orgasmic stain? And I basically said, it's organic. <laughs> so you remove it just like you do an organ, organic stain. So that's one of the stories. The second story wasn't mine, but years and years ago, I actually started, or I should say participated in one of the very, very first forums that were on the internet, back when the internet first started, you know, back when Al Gore invented it. Just kidding. Uh, but, uh, and one of these, one of the guys wrote in and said, I got a telephone call from this lady that said she had some stains in her shower and she wanted to know how to get them out. So, you know, one of the first things you do in stain removal, obviously, is you ask what the stain is. If the customer knows what caused the stain, then you can, you know, come up with a chemical to actually remove the stain. Well, this guy goes out there and he, he's looking at the shower and he sees these stains and he says, well, you know, I, I, I could probably put a poultice on there, but can you give me an idea of what the stains look like? Well, from what he told me, the lady turned beet red and she said, well, I don't know how to say this, but you know, my husband and I like to have sex in the shower, and we use these oils. <laughs> so they were oil stains, and he was able to come up with a poultice. So I hope I dis disappointed you guys, but that's my story on how stone and sex <laughs> go to, uh, go together. So anyway, uh, with that, let me go ahead and give out the phone numbers one more time, and I have a couple of other things to discuss yet before we end this show, and that is 323-870-3968. Uh, 323-870-3968. Okay, one of the other ones I constantly get uh, this question, I actually got one of these just today, and that is that blue-green bloom that occurs on certain granites. Now, I think I've mentioned this a number of times, but I'll repeat it if you're a first-time listener. And you, you, when you use CA glues, which are the super glues, and a lot of fabricators will use these, restoration guys will use these, and they actually sell what they call an accelerator. And what happens is you can imagine putting super glue on a seam, for example, and then you hit it with this accelerator and it instantly, it instantly cures. Well, that accelerator reacts with certain granites and causes this blue-greenish bloom, if you will. Um, now, some people have uh, success in pulling them out with bleach poultices, uh, baking soda poultices, but there, there is a product out there that 10X, T-E-N-A-X, uh, manufactures as well as uh, Braxton Bragg that is designed, it's a poultice, a two-chemical poultice that's designed for pulling those blue-green uh, blooms out. The fact of the matter is you really don't need that accelerator. That, that super glue or that CA glue is going to dry anyway. It's just not going to dry instantly. So uh, be aware of that. Now, people ask me what causes it. And my my the research that I've done, and I haven't done a lot of research on it, but I've noticed granites that contain minute amounts of copper seem to react when the copper is present. So um, I'm thinking what's happening here is the accelerator is reacting with the copper, and it actually turns it that copperish, you know, blue-green type color, which is a dead giveaway that you're dealing with with, with a copper. Uh, okay. 
And I think that's about all I have for this week. Oh, no, I don't. One more one more thing I do have, and that is uh, granite etching. And we're getting more and more of these calls where, you know, a customer will call or a restoration guy, a fabricator will call and say, you know, I have a customer that's complaining about their granite countertop etching. And, you know, granite's not supposed to etch with acids, right? Well, yes and no. Uh, if we take a look at the geology of stone, and I think I did a whole show on this as well, uh, remember there is something called the rock cycle. In other words, granite can become a sedimentary material, sedimentary material can become marble, limestone can become marble, and it's this whole whole circle. Well, a lot of times, some of these granites are in the are in the midst of not quite forming into granite yet. Uh, under a lot of heat and pressure, and there may be some presence of calcium there. So we call them calcium binders. So some black uh, granites have this issue where you have uh, spots of an etching. It's due to uh, calcium that are that are present in the granite itself. Uh, it's an easy fix if it is true calcium deposits because it can be polished out with marble polishing powder. You don't want to mistake that for dyes that you find in some of the granites where a customer may think it's an etch, but in actuality, it's not an etch at all. It's it's granite that's died. So, so those are some of the emails I've gotten over the past. Uh, if you guys have any suggestions for a show, I think we'll uh, try to do a moisture-related show next next uh, week. That's 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 pretty good. Uh, feel free to send me an email at fhuston at gmail.com. That's f-h-u-e-s-t-o-n at gmail.com. And of course, my Facebook page on Messenger. Search for Stone Forensics. Again, if you're interested in the uh, correspondence class for either the Stone and Tile Inspection troubleshooting class or the historic stone restoration class uh go ahead and send me an email and we'll get you some information on that as well they're they're two great classes uh you'll definitely learn a lot a lot from them so until next week i'm going to sign off but we'll be back on the air here again uh next wednesday at 6 p.m eastern time 3 p.m pacific time everyone have a great weekend this is fred houston with the stone and tile show see everyone next week <laughs>